Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. Austin did a great job uh, honoring mothers and his own wife, mother of his children. So I will simply, I've got a sermon to preach, so I'll simply say yes and amen and, and, and also echo the fact that there's nothing, we don't have words to convey how grateful we are. Um, to the mother of my children and to my mother, thank you. I love you. More than words can say, we, mothers, we're thankful for you. We honor you today. So we are in the middle, sort of toward the end just now, and we're in sermon three of four uh, of a series in, like Austin said, in Acts one and two. And the, si- the, the series title, if there is one, is All That Jesus Continued to Do and to Teach, and it's based on Acts verse one, where Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, opens up. I've been calling Acts Luke 2.0. That makes it sound like it's an advanced version of Luke. I should just say part two. 2.0, is, that's a misnomer. I, I, I listened to part of my sermon last week. I, I don't like Luke 2.0. Acts is the second book, the continuation of the Gospel of Luke uh, that Luke writes, and it's, it's part two. And he starts off the whole book this way with verse one. In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. And the strong implication there is that the book of Acts is about that all that Jesus continues to do and to teach after he's taken up by his very spirit and breath and life in his church, which continues to increase as people understand what he came to do to bring them back to God and believe on him and are saved and go from death or brought from death to life. So it's about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. And we see that broad, scattered broadcast throughout the book. Peter, who denied Christ three times, stands up and preaches like a lion here. Because that's, and who does that remind us of? It's Jesus. It's the, it's the way, when Jesus opened his mouth, people were astonished. And that's exactly what we see here. And in Acts 3, um, we see Peter and John driving out demons, giving sight to the blind, uh, healing a man and uh, being thrown into prison and coming out and conti- being set loose by angels and, and continuing to preach in power. And then as I was reading through the book of Acts again, I've just kind of been reading it on repeat these past few weeks, um, I was struck by the fact that toward the end of the book of Acts, so you see that all the way through the book of Acts, the words going out in power, people are getting healed, eyes are being opened, people are being brought back to life, the word is being proclaimed, they are witnessing to Christ and it is Christ. It's the same stuff we see in Christ's ministry. It's Christ continuing to minister in a, with a multiplication effect through those that are his by faith. But toward the end of the book, Paul, he's, uh, he's with those who have been set adrift in a storm in, a, in the Mediterranean, in a ship, and it's been two weeks, 14 days since they've seen anything. It's been dark. It's been stormy. They think that they're lost. They've thrown almost everything overboard. And a moment comes where Paul says, the Lord, an angel appeared to me and not a single hair is going to be harmed on anyone's head, but do what I say. And he says, now let's stop throwing the food overboard. We haven't eaten for two weeks. Let me, let's feed, let me feed you. And it says that he says a blessing and he breaks bread. And it's almost the exact same words as Jesus in the Last Supper. And so just, it's, it, was a, it was a reminder to me and a confirmation of the fact that Jesus is here through his people. And he continues to be here on this earth through his people, you, his church. Um, and, and, and the way that even the book of Acts ends is, 
it almost ends in mid-sentence. And there's a Monty Python sketch in Monty Python of the Holy Grail where they're reading cave writings of somebody, and, it's, and he's reading it, and then he goes, ah. And he's like, what, that, what was that? And he's like, and it says, this man was being chased by a dragon, and ah. And he's like, that's exactly what was written, ah. You know, it's like, it's just, it just trails off mid-sentence. That's almost what we have here. It's like, Paul's in prison, he continues to preach, period. There's no wrap-up, there's no conclusion, there's no finishing paragraph. And the question is, why does Acts end almost mid-sentence like that? Because Luke wrote this, and Luke was a medical doctor, and Luke was a careful historian. He sets about to show to Theophilus exactly what happened by talking to eyewitnesses, by having been with Peter, um, by having been with Paul, excuse me, on a lot of these journeys. In chapter 16, the narrative switches from they did these things to we, so it's clear that he's talking about his own experience with Paul in a lot of these things. So he could have, he's a precise person, he could have finished it nicely, but he doesn't. So what is he saying here? He's saying what he starts with, which is that Christ isn't done with his work because his church is still here, and this is the age of the church. This is the age of the Spirit, and he has continued work in words to preach and to do through his people, his church. So the work carries on, even after Peter dies, even after Paul dies. That's why we're called Acts 29. We're an Acts 29 church. There are 28 chapters in Acts. So that, that is... That is sort of packed into that short phrase, Acts 29, that whole understanding that we, God, is, God through Christ is continuing to speak in power and to work through us, his church. The work carries on through us. Um, so I hope that encourages you. Let's just talk for a few minutes today about this amazing sermon. It's the first, it's, it's Peter's first sermon. It's the first sermon of the church. It's the first sermon that's preached um, in church or by the church. And it, in it, um, I, have two, I have twin aims this morning. In it, uh, Peter preaches just the unvarnished gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to, my twin aims are to learn together how to proclaim the gospel from Peter's sermon um, and also to proclaim the gospel to you in the process. Now, just as a side note, this sermon takes about three minutes, this sermon of Peter's, including the bit that we read last week that Austin didn't read uh, where he includes this quote from Joel. Just at a normal preaching or out loud reading pace, it takes about three minutes to read. I timed it. So that said, if you are thinking, if your next thought is what mine was, which is, man, I wish Taylor would learn to preach that briefly. I think my intro's already been long, way longer than three minutes. Um, let me say to you as a follow-up, not so fast. Um, don't miss verse 40 where it says, and with many other words, he bore wit- he continued to bear witness. <laughs> so, uh, there it is. So Peter, Peter starts his sermon in earnest, I want to say here in verse 22 in the text that Austin started with this morning. Uh, this is the meat and potatoes of what he has to proclaim. What we read last week uh, the prophecy that he begins with that's from Joel chapter two in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, is a bit of an appetizer. It's an explanation for why these 120 apostles and others included that were in the upper room bust out into Jerusalem and just are preaching about the mighty works of God in all these languages of the dispersion from the Jews that are around the, um, the ancient Near East, around the Mediterranean, in the known world. So he's saying, this is why this is happening. It's a fulfillment of scripture. But then he really gets to his meat potatoes here. He zeroes in, 
And what does he zero in on? What is the heart of his proclamation of the mighty deeds of God in Christ? It's Jesus' death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is why he came. So the first, the first point is just, we're just going to walk through Peter's um, unpacking and proclamation of the gospel together. The first point is Jesus' death and resurrection are absolutely central to our message. As central as they were to Peter's. In verse 22, he says this. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he talks about all that Jesus did in power and in his goodness and in his tenderness and compassion in life, his miracles, his signs and wonders, his works, his healings, his kindness. And the question I want to ask is, was that, according to Peter's own proclamation, was that life, that wonderful life of Jesus enough? Sometimes we hear the gospel portrayed and framed as live like Jesus lived. He came to be a wonderful example for us. And the manifest and clear answer that Peter gives is no. It was not enough. Jesus lived for us, but his death was, was required for us to be free. His death, Peter goes on, was the reason that he came. He said this over and over in his ministry. I came to die. I'm going to Jerusalem where all the prophets are killed to die. Why? Because just as he came to live in your place, to live a life of obedience to the Father from the heart that we ought to live but can't, he came to die in your place, taking what you and I deserve as a sin sacrifice. And so Peter's super clear about this. Um, he's, Peter's now preaching to the very people that killed Jesus. And he's saying, this is all part of the plan of God. He died, you killed him, and that was part of his plan to save you, to die in your place, to step in the gap. So Jesus came not just as an example, but as our substitute, okay? And Peter says this in, in 23, at the end of verse 23, he says, Jesus, him you crucified and killed. Why does, he belabors the point here. Why didn't he just say, him you crucified? It seems like that's enough. Like, yeah, when you crucify someone, they die. But he, he goes on, he says, him you crucified, and just in case you weren't clear about that, you killed him, too. Why does he belabor the point? Because he wants to be absolutely clear to his listeners that Jesus died. He, a spear was stuck in his side. John saw it. Others that were close to him saw it. The centurion and others that crucified him, the Romans saw it. The Jews saw it. And his blood and the water in his body had begun to separate. It's a sign of medical death. And when, his spear, when, a, when the spear pierced his side, blood and water came out. I think that's called coagulation. I should know. I'm not sure. We have at least one doctor in the room. He'll, he'll know. Um, but Jesus had, was medically dead. So he doesn't just say, him you crucified. Just in case you're not sure what happened, you killed him. He died. It's like the uh, Apostles' Creed. When I think about that, I think immediately of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was crucified. And then what, how does it go on? Dead and buried. Why this focus on death? Here's why. Because the wages of sin, the Bible's very clear. Paul says this in Romans. The wages of our sin, what we have earned for our life of rebellion and going our own way and doing our own thing when there's a God who made us for himself, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died not for himself but for you. 
to pay the price that you owe so that believing in him, you would owe, look at me, donut, zero, nothing. He didn't die for him. He died for you. He took your place. He took my place. As our substitute, he paid the price that we owe. He endured not just little d death. His heart didn't just stop beating. He endured all the eternal unraveling that will continue for those who, who are outside of Christ, who trust not in, them, not in Christ but in themselves. He took hell. He paid the price of eternal separation from God and the white-hot wrath against our sin of God, the just, poured out on him. The tortures and the torments of hell. The disillusion of the soul that sin feeds on and is and does. Jesus took all that inside of himself. He was eternally undone. He didn't just stop breathing. He endured all that for us. So Peter focuses on that here, and it's the, it is the thing that we have to, again, we're not, I'm not just preaching the gospel to you. I'm wanting you to see, okay, here's the ABCs of how to proclaim the gospel to those that I, that I come across, to those that I encounter. Um, so that's it. And, and Peter goes on to say in this, in this amazing bit in verse 23, he doesn't just say, you crucified him. Man, God, God was really at that point back on his heels and wondering, what should I do? I came for my son to be an example and for people to follow him and look what you've done. You've, you've ruined that process. No, again, he says, all this was done exactly according to the perfect plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He used the evil of man in their moral responsibility to accomplish his perfect plan so that when they killed him, what they were doing, he was using that malice and evil to open up a door of salvation for those very people. And like Austin said, we had a hand in it too because he died for us as well. And so uh, this is what he has done for us. So great was the problem and so great is his love for us. Um, in verse 24, I just want to look at just a couple wonderful phrases. Uh, loosing or melting the pangs of death. And then he goes on, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, to be held by death. Think of death as an active power. It's saying, he, it was like ropes that just become, that just melt off of him. Um, he broke forth from death because the power of death was too little for the great Christ. Um, he died, he took that, he absorbed it. And because he is the living one, as he says to John in the book of Revelation, chapter one. Because he is the very author of life, because he is the I am, he is the one, he is the origin and source of life. He always has been. He has no creator. He is ase. He is self-existent. He is so living that he's always been living. Try to think about that for half a second, and when you begin to get your mind tapped into it a little bit, I won't even say around it, your mind will just like threatens to explode. He is a, the only necessary being. He is life itself. Life, he, he doesn't have life. He is life. And you can't keep life dead. That's what Peter's saying here. It's like lighting a stick of dynamite and sticking it a foot in the ground. When it blows, the earth's coming up. Okay, it's like a beach ball when you're in the pool and you're trying to keep it under. And eventually, it just keeps popping up and eventually it wins. Like, I don't think anyone's ever won with that, you know? You know the beach ball always wins. It's going to come up. It's in its nature, and what Peter goes on to say is that's really, 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 really good news um, for you. So let me, let me build on that and sidestep the question. Even if the resurrection happened, and we talked at Easter Sunday about some of the mountain of evidence for the fact that the best, most logical, 
most reasonable explanation when you look at the gospel evidence and external, extra-biblical evidence for the empty tomb and for what happens in the church as those who ran when he was crucified and thought, oh no, what a disaster, are now preaching, getting thrown in prison, and eventually most of them killed, going to their graves saying, he rose, we ate with him. Acts chapter 10, Peter says this to Cornelius, we ate fish across the table from the one that we saw, stabbed, crucified, holes are still in his hands, he's alive. Um, Even if it did happen, why does the resurrection of one man matter for you and for me? Well, Paul, um, toward the end of Acts again, he says this to King Agrippa. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. In other words, I'm saying nothing new. It's what the whole Old Testament leads us to. It's like the whole Old Testament's a funnel, and it funnels to one point, this, that the Christ must suffer that the Christ is the Greek form of Messiah, Messiah in the Hebrew. The Messiah must suffer. The whole Old Testament foretold it. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. In other words, to the Jews and to all the nations of the earth. Okay? And here's what I want to focus on. Why did Paul say this amazing phrase, by being the first to rise from the dead? Friends, The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is not good news because he rose. It's good news because he rose first. That's what Paul says here. When he died, he didn't die for him. He buried the entire race of old humanity, dead in its sins and trespasses. And when he rose, he didn't rise for him. He rose as a new prototype of an entirely new sort of human, not, no longer held by the power of sin, free from the power of death and hell, made friends of God the Father once again, as it was supposed to be. Okay, uh, when he was buried, a whole, the old humanity was buried. When he rose, he rose first, and a, an entire new race of men and women would rise with him by faith those who trusted in the work that he had done for them as their substitute. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Your debt, friend, when you look to Christ, it's cleared. Jesus makes of death no longer a prison, but an open door, to quote Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings, an open door to far green fields under a swift sunrise. This is what Jesus makes of death and all that it entails. So that's the first point. The second is that Jesus, the second point Peter makes is this. Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection fulfills all of Scripture. He fulfills all of Scripture. He's not doing something new. He's, he's fulfilling Scripture. What reason, in addition to his life itself, his being life itself, does Peter give for his not being able, for Jesus' not being able to be held down by death? Um, the scripture, he says that it's because the Scripture said it would happen this way. And because they said it would happen this way, it had to. He says, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? And then he goes on, for David said concerning him. Uh, and then he quotes from Psalm 16, from something, from the scripture that was written a thousand years before Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying the Psalms, which are God's word and which are truth, and God's word gave rise to all that is, all that is created. Uh, when God speaks, things come into being. God's word creates life and it must be obeyed. 
because the Psalms say that it had to happen this way, that Jesus had to be crucified and had to rise, it must come to pass. Recall, this all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we don't have time to get into it, sadly, but it's amazing how Peter reads the Psalms here, Psalm 16 in particular, in verse 27. Presumably, David wrote this about himself. Um, Toward the end, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades in verse 27, when he's quoting from Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. It's David that's speaking here. Um, but, and it seems like he's talking about himself and it seems like he's saying, like, look, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna die and my body's gonna rot, but I'm going to be with you and eventually you're going to, the Jews believed in the resurrection of the body at the end of time, okay? But here it's breaking into the middle of time. And it seems upon just a cursory reading, like David's clearly talking about himself, but what Peter does is he appropriates that and he says he was, but really he foresaw that God said that he was going to put someone on the throne whose reign would never end through David's line, and David was speaking about that one. Even though he didn't know all the details, he was saying, well, actually, here's what Peter says. David says, you won't let your holy one see corruption. And Peter says, well, David's still, he's in his grave. We know where his tomb is. His body has rotted. So Peter does the, uh, the very farthest thing from spiritualizing this text. He says, the one, yeah, David partially fulfills it, but do you want to know the one who ultimately, who constantly fulfills it. And this is a perfect rule. That's why I bring it up, because Peter does. But also, it's the best rule for reading Scripture, for reading the Old Testament, to read it the way Peter does. And that is to say, it's going to come true, and it's fulfilled and made clear in Jesus Christ. He is the one who his body did not begin to rot, because it was in the tomb for a little over 24 hours. And on the morning of the third day, he rose before the decomposition set in, what David partially fulfills and writes partially about himself, Jesus makes total sense of and completely fulfills. It's all for him. It's made clear by him. Um, And so that's the way that Peter is preaching this gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God's been pointing to. Jesus makes sense. Jesus alone makes sense of all the words, that, all the holy scripture and the writ of God that we've been given for centuries. Um, and, And I see people read the Old Testament without this understanding, trying to make sense of it without the prism of Christ, without understanding that Jesus is the one who fulfills it, and it's madness. It makes no sense. It doesn't hang together. But with Jesus, it does. So David wrote this about himself, but Jesus fulfills it. And Peter's saying, there's a sense in which David even foresaw that and knew that, even though he didn't know the whole picture. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 24. He says, this is the last chapter in Luke, again, who wrote Acts. Then Jesus said to them, some of his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's just been resurrected, and they're like blown away that he's been resurrected. And he's like, hey, it's exactly what I told you had to happen, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, exactly as is happening here in Acts 2. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, Jesus says, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So, 
Jesus fulfills it all. And Peter makes, makes that very clear. Um, and that ought to be part of the way that we preach the gospel. Maybe not every time, but hey, this, this, that's how all the gospels start. This is what's been prophesied and preached about for centuries by Moses, uh, by the prophets, by others. Jesus Christ, he's come. Um, note this too, though. Why can David have confidence uh, that, that he will therefore not be shaken? Notice that um, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, where David starts out by saying, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And he goes on to say that I might be glad and have gladness and be free. Why can David know that? He can know that because, and he casts forward to this, and we know this now uh, through David and through Peter. He can know that because of the fact that Jesus came and made sense of and fulfilled all that the scripture was pointing to. Because he lived for us a life of perfect obedience because he died for us, the death that we deserve before a just and holy God, and because he rose, showing that his payment for you had been accepted by God the Father, and that he rose to start a new type of human that was no longer at, at enmity, at odds, at hatred with God, but was a child of God. Um, because he's done all, the thing, all these things, David, a thousand years previously, can, said, can say, because Messiah is coming, I can take confidence I can be glad. I can be with God and have him be my fortress and not my enemy. So even retroactively, Jesus secures those who look to him. Even during his life, Jesus secured those who look to him. Even after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus secures those and makes the, us glad and not able to be shaken. Hey, no matter what we are going through, we can have gladness and solid hope in the darkest of days. We can know that even death and the worst problems, the most heinous things that happen to us, um, will end in our being full of gladness and full of joy and not shaken in God's presence forevermore because of Jesus. Because God in his infinite and unsearchable wisdom and love determined for us as fully responsible moral agents to murder his son as the mechanism of our salvation. This is what Peter's saying here. So he could die in our place, so he could rise in our place, so that death, all these things that any thinking person ought to be afraid of outside of Christ, so that the power of death and sin and Satan and hell um, know, are shattered in Christ and no longer uh, have to terrify us, but that Jesus ushers us into the presence of God. Um, the third thing that Peter makes clear here, so Jesus fulfills the scripture, he makes sense of it, he secures us. But the third thing is that Jesus, this Jesus whom we killed is the king. Um, and, and Peter says, this explains what you're seeing and hearing, this Holy Spirit outpouring, and it changes everything. So in brief, um, he, Peter's saying this, he's saying, this Holy Spirit has been poured out. Jesus has ascended to a place that we can't see him anymore. He's now at the right hand of God the Father, and he has poured his Spirit out. Do you know how we know, what we know because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because of what's happening in us, this indwelling of the Spirit of God in us? We're, we're speaking of the mighty works of God in all these different languages. The two things in brief that we know, Peter says, is one, he left us, but we know that he made it. He died for us. It seems like he was being judged of God 
for the wrongs he had done, but it wasn't for the wrongs he had done. It was the wrongs we had done. And he was vindicated by rising from the dead, but he was really vindicated by the fact that he now shares the throne with God because he told us, when I, re- when I get there, when I reach the throne, I'm going to send you the Father's promise. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And the fact that they have the spirit, one, shows them he made it. He is at the right hand of power. And because he's our substitute and our representative, so are we. No matter what you go through, that's your position if you're in Christ. That's your position. That's what Paul assures us of later in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere. And that's what Peter's saying here. We know he made it. And secondly, we know that he is in us by his spirit and that we're free. The Father has stamped his approval on the payment of Jesus Christ, on his life for you, on his death for you. And he has said, now the fire, the fiery presence of the living God, when they have trusted in Christ, because of what he's done, he has made them, he has made them at peace with me, and he has made them um, receptacles that are able not to be destroyed by the fire of God, because fire destroys. And fire destroys that which is insubstantial. But he, the faith, faith in Christ remakes us in such a way that we are now able to be filled with the fire of God and powered for witness and connected to God in love. And so um, we know those two things, that he made it and that he's in us and that we're free. Um, so let's, but I, I want to, before moving to the sort of the, the last point and then just some application, I want to take a closer look at some of Peter's wording here. It's odd. Um, Peter says, not Jesus is Lord, but he says, God has made him Lord whom you crucified. And the question I have for you is, isn't, that's weird because hasn't Jesus always been Lord? Hasn't Jesus always been Lord? He claimed to be God equal with the Father. When you see the Father, you've seen, when you see me, you've seen the Father and the Son of God the only Son of God, begotten before all worlds, eternal and equal with, with God the Father? Um, hasn't he always been um, Lord? And the key, I think, is uh, what, how Peter unfolds it. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, it's the man. The Son of God hasn't always been a man. There's a point in time, 2,000 years ago to be exact, in which he stepped into space and time, into history, and became one of us. He began to represent us as a man, as Jesus. He hasn't always been Jesus of Nazareth, but he was and remains a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he became a representative for us. And as a man, he was crucified. He was crucified. Um, And so this Jesus that represented mankind in our sins and shortcomings and uh, the rebellion of Adam got cursed and killed and buried in the ground. And the Jesus who rose, rose as the first, as I said, of a new order, the captain of a new creation. And so when the fact that he is seated on high means that we are too, all of us who look to him. For the first time, some say it this way, for the first time ever, Jesus as the son of God, eternal, had always reigned as Lord at the helm of the cosmos. But for the first time in history, at his ascension, when he took the throne, the dust of the earth sat at the nerve center of the cosmos, cosmos, sat at the control center of the universe, representing you and me, having paid 
for all that you owe God the Father and left it in the ground. Okay, so Jesus as a man who was crucified now reigns. Um, When the Jews and Romans conspired together to kill Jesus, they weren't killing one man, like I said. They were killing, they didn't know it, but they were killing an old order, an old humanity. The whole broken order Jesus took into himself and killed and buried. And so when Jesus rose, it wasn't one man rising. It was the second man, the second Adam, the second Adam, with all of a new creation hitched to his lodestar. You see? Um, with all of creation ineluctably following. And that's what we see as his kingdom goes forth, is that his resurrection and ascension power are going forth through us. He continues to speak and to act through us, his body. Um, and so we can see why, because Peter understands this, that no matter what happens, he wins and he is seated next to God the Father in power through the record and the work and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he wins. He can preach the gospel with impunity. He can get thrown in prison. He can get, he can get whipped to the point of death. He can get stoned. He can get shipwrecked. He can sing no matter what is happening because he knows his position and his station is locked into that of the risen Lord. And that is our station. No matter what is happening to us. Peter is telling us, fix your eyes on Christ who's seated on high. That's where he is and that's where you are too. And that, friends, can get us through the darkest of days. No wonder they turned the world upside down with their proclamation of the gospel, enduring so much worse than most of us ever have or probably ever will. Um, Jesus was continuing his words and works through them, his body on earth, and so it goes with us. And so it goes with us. And notice in sort of in, in winding down, fourthly, the call to repent and to believe in or into Jesus. Um, starting in verse 37 and following from there, note the progression after his proclamation. So he finishes his sermon, although he, he continues with many other words, verse 40, don't forget that. Um, they were, what's their reaction? They were cut, or the word is, just means stabbed, to the heart. There's conviction. So when we preach the gospel with these components, that Jesus came, he fulfills the scriptures, he lived in our place, he died in our place, he was vindicated, your payment was accepted, that's what the resurrection means. He started a whole new order. And no matter what's happening in our lives, we are part of that if we look to him as our captain and our king and our substitute and our savior and the one who took what we deserve. Um, they are, it all, the word of God preached in this way, the mighty works Fulfilled in Christ always brings conviction, not to every soul, but to ones that God calls to himself. God's in charge of the result. We're called to be seed scatterers. What we're not called to do, and you'll see this from here all the way through the end of the New Testament, and it starts with Jesus' own parables, right? What we're not called to do, and here's how a lot of us share the gospel in word and deed. You get it? We have our bag of seed of gospel proclamation in word and deed, and we take, we very judiciously and very carefully take a seed Make a little hole, place it, take another one. No, that's not a good, okay, right there. Place it. We do that. How, how is the harvest going to be if that's the way that we scatter seed? What does Jesus say? What, what happens here in the book of Acts? It's scattered broadcast to every creature that is unfortunate enough, just kidding, that is blessed enough, hopefully, to come into contact with us. We are dangerous people. It reminds me of, the Top Gun scene 
when um, Maverick and Iceman are in the, um, this is off script, so be careful, uh, are in the locker room and, and Iceman comes up to Maverick, who's been, you know, doing, doing hijinks in the air with his, with his jet, his fighter jet, and he says, I don't like you, Maverick, because you're dangerous. And he gets up in his face and Maverick goes, that's right, Ice Man. And he taps his shoulder. He goes, I am dangerous. You know, I mean, that's the way we ought to be. People ought to be, they ought to know they are in danger. The heavens ought to know. The, the demons ought to tremble knowing that man, that woman, that child, that person is in this environment and they are dangerous. And this environment is going to get scattered broadcast with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so conviction is brought to those whom God calls. There's a call to repent. It's, we often stop with just like, we preach the gospel, there's conviction, boom. No, Peter didn't stop there. He calls them to turn from their wicked ways. All of us in our idolatries have crucified Christ. That is one of the things the cross tells us. It couldn't be worse. It's one of the things the cross tells us. He could not have made more of a payment for us than what he did. But the other thing the cross tells us is it was absolutely sufficient and you're free. Like we read in Hebrews 10, 14 earlier, we have been perfected by one sacrifice for all time. And therefore, from that rolls out a continual and progressive sanctification, becoming more and more like him who clothes us in his righteousness. Okay? Um, so, Peter calls to repentance. Repentance, conviction is not enough. A lot of us will, I pray this is not the case here. Lord, may this not be the case here with a single soul. Some of us will be convicted. We will leave here convicted by all that the cross tells us, what we deserved and what he took in our place and how he's made a way for us to be at peace with God. But if there is not repentance and a turning from the, our old ways to the living God in Christ, it is worthless and worse than worthless. So my proclamation to you is Peter's proclamation, which is repent. Turn away from whatever it, good thing it is that you're running after or bad thing and turn toward the living God in Jesus Christ. Um, not to wallow in our guilt, but to know that we have a Savior who has made satisfaction. He has satisfied the Father. The Father is satisfied. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have done or where you have been and for how long, the Father is satisfied with the offering that Jesus Christ has made for you. So come to him. Come back from your wandering and come home. That's that's the proclamation that Peter issues and that we need to issue. And then what happens? There's a bab they are baptized. They're making an outward confession and identifying with what God has been doing on a large scale for a long time with this larger work and this larger family that gets larger and larger and larger. Like Austin said, Lord, you've done it then. You saved 3,000. The next day you saved 2,000 more and you kept doing it. You can do it now. You're doing it now. Do it here. Do it in our day. Do it with us. Do it through us. That's a prayer. Please, Lord. And what are they baptized into? I say they were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ because that's exactly what the Greek says. It's the, it's the uh, particle, the preposition ice, E-I-S, which means in, 
baptized in Jesus, or, but it also means, um, excuse me, believed in Jesus, but it also means uh, that they were, ba- it really means they were baptized and believed into the name. And I, I've shared this before, but that's a bit awkward, so that's why the translators choose to say in Jesus, but I'll, I'll share it again. Um, I have, in short, a prof- I had a professor who had a near-death experience in a car, and the only thing it was one of those things that it happens before you realize it, and the only thing, he didn't have time to think, as it were, to choose what he was going to think about, but the only thing that popped into his head, the only thing, was that he was encased. My friend had a, my other friend at, at, at university had a sugar squirrel, and the sugar squirrel, he also had dogs. So the sugar squirrel used to run around in this clear, hard plastic ball. He would run around the carpet and the, and, the, and the flat at the university, and he was totally protected, and the dog would come and try to bite him, but the, the sugar squirrel with impunity would just run around the, the flat in his little encasement, and he knew he was protected and safe, totally covered, and that picture is what ran in, came into my professor's head, is that he was covered and encased and protected totally in Christ. In, he, was, he was placed by faith into the person, the righteousness, the payment, the covering of Jesus Christ. And he almost died, but he didn't. But if he had, it would have been okay. And he still is encased in Christ, okay? And he's brought to the Father. And so that is the picture that we're given here. We are inserted into the protection. The robe of righteousness is placed over us and nothing, our own behavior, our own disobedience, nothing can change that. And that assurance is one of the things that helps us to grow. It gives us a wide place to stand in. Um, and, and Peter goes on, I'm almost done, and he says, for the, baptize what? For the forgiveness of sins. You know, we often stop there. What did Jesus come for? Why are we saved? So that our sins can be forgiven. Does Peter stop there? That's a huge part of the gospel, but no, he doesn't stop there. We need to move on from the minus. The gospel's not a minus. The minus happens, the cleansing happens so that the plus can happen, so that we can be brought into relationship and what has Peter said? And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just gas in the engine, but being brought back to God through his presence, living in us and all the sweetness, get this, of being known in the places no one else, not even your spouse knows you, the ways you don't even know yourself, the things that you're afraid to whisper in the night. Those things, good, bad, and ugly, God wants to know. And the nasties, he wants to carve away and change. And he wants to make you more like his son. And in being made more like his son, you become more the person you were created to be. That is what we're saved for. Not a minus. Being known and knowing and proclaiming that gospel to a weary world. I'll finish with this because of time. Yes, because of time. Um, he, he talks about the reassurance, um, it, it, these doctrines that are so reassuring that God will never leave us or forsake us. His Holy Spirit shows us that he's victorious and where he is, but also that we have been brought back to God and he's in us now. And we've been made children through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, not our own work. Uh, I'll finish with this illustration. I, I was at my youngest daughter's um, a little thing that she had at school and it was during the, the rodeo in March, and there was a cowboy that came, and he was wearing spurs, but as he walked around, his spurs would uh, jingle, 
and I didn't notice it until he pointed out. He said, you know what, this little, is a little bell that's attached to a little bit of metal on the spur that's separate from the actual spur. And he said, this, is, this has a name, and it's something, it's not just fancy, it's something that the cowboys invented, the, the cow punchers. It's called a jingle bob. And the jingle bob was such that it was invented because it makes noise, ding, just a kind of a, a light jingle, a jingle, uh, a light chime wherever you walk. And it, it was for the cattle because when they were on cattle drives, it would get dark at night and the cattle wouldn't be able to see anything and they could get spooked really easily. And if a bunch of cattle, if one cattle gets, cow gets spooked, all the cattle can and then there's a stampede and you lose your cattle and people die and it's bad. So what the cowboys would do is they would walk around the camp in the middle of the night with their jingle bobs. And the jingle, ding, 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 would just reassure. Because they would hear this, the cattle would hear this all throughout the cattle drive during the day. And so they knew those who are protecting us and keeping us together and watching out for us, they're among us. This, this is one of the many things that Peter is saying here, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to show us that Christ made it and to remind us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is here to stay. And the only thing that's gonna change is bodily, he will return. He will return to take those, are his, those who are his to himself. Um, that's enough for today. There is more, but not today. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that Peter did not preach for just three minutes. Uh, I thank you that in those three minutes he preached a wonderful message that fulfills all of Scripture because, Jesus, that's what, who you are and what you came to do. You came to set us free. Um, I thank you for the privilege of getting to preach your word. That's not just me. It's all of us. We are your church. Increase your church. Bring people back to you today. Faith isn't just a one-time thing as you show us here and elsewhere. It should grow. It should grow every time we dig into your word and every time we hear the gospel and every time you come to us and open our eyes and our hearts and convict us of sin. Grow our faith. Give some of us faith for the first time today. Save, sanctify for your glory. You reign. You are working and speaking through us. Do it more. Do it more. Do it more. Holy Spirit, come that you might speed the return of our King. We love you, we bless you, in Jesus' name, amen.